Hi, my name's Alex Sunnyforth. Welcome to Man Marking. And now we're asking, where's the talking, lads? You've got to get into, out of the game where you've been into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them, I didn't have anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to Alex Staniforth. Yes, yeah, so I'm Alex Staniforth. I'm an adventurer, a motivational speaker, an author, and you know, initially I started a charity, Mind Over Mountains, which is a mental health charity trying to restore mental health through outdoor experiences. Um, I'm uh, I'm now based in Kendall in the South Lakes. I'm you know I'm from Chester. And um, and yeah, um, my life really is about overcoming challenges through the outdoors and now trying to inspire people to overcome theirs. Joining me on today's show, as is the usual custom, it's my friend and confidant. It's Ryan Pulford. How are we, mate? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. As I've just told you, then my arms are in serious agony due to my first experience of lifting weights for about two years the other week and i'm now struggling to like brush me hair yeah for all you for the people who are listening it's obviously not an audio feature but my hair is absolutely extraordinary this morning it's um yeah, large is a good way to describe it mate. it's a good way to describe it have you watched any football this weekend um just tramia that's all I've so no <laughs> <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah no, the less said about that, the better, I think, mate. Yeah, I think um, knowing that a few of our listeners are Tramia fans, I think it's best we stay clear with the topic <laughs> of Tramia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right, mate. I think you're probably right. On that note, then, we'll move on to today's guest, um, Alex Staniforth, who was... Um, he was a lovely, lovely chap, wasn't he? It was a very interesting evening for me and you he talking was. to him and... Um, yeah, sort of a little bit different for us, isn't it? Something that's, you know, not the, um, you know, we obviously normally talk to, to footballers or people from football, but Alex is something a little bit different for us and had a little bit of a different perspective. And, you know, obviously we'll get to that in, in the interview. But, yeah, it was uh, one of our friends, wasn't it, who we, we play football with on Monday night, who, who recommended Alex to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the lads in football who, who I think is involved in, in education had him talking at one of the schools he, he works for and, and said to us he, he'd be somebody who I'd highly recommend and we reached out and, and he came on. And quite funny really because a lot of the people we've spoken to tend to be older than us and mm. Alex is younger than us and he, you wouldn't think it listening to him but sort of the, the wisdom he's got. He's certainly um, years beyond his actual his actual passport age, should we say? Yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he was a great lad to have on. Yeah, he was. That that it, that's a very good point. That right. I think. Um, yeah, as you say, you probably listening to him would think he was someone who was maybe in his mid thirties or something yeah. in terms of the the some of the experiences that he's had and the way he's able to articulate them. I think that's um, yeah, that's a very good point. So for the for the purpose of the listeners, Ryan, obviously we always have a, a theme for these episodes. Would you like to give the uh, the listeners uh, today's theme, please, mate? Yeah, 
So today's theme is we need purpose, not just pills. Absolutely. And that's that's obviously our theme. That's the one that we've come up with. And, you know, if you, the listener, if you pick up on anything that we haven't, then make sure you email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag, where's the talking, lads? So we're now going to hand you over to Alex Staniforth and we'll see you on the other side for a brief chat after the interview. You're listening to Man Marking. This podcast itself, Alex, is about mental health and exploring kind of men's mental health and maybe hoping to sort of uh, tackle some stigmas, break down some barriers. And I know that's something you're very interested in and something you've done a lot of work in. Could you give us a bit of an idea as to to why you uh, agreed to to come on the podcast for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's great to have that platform. It's, you know, it's great work, you know, you started just to try and you know actually normalize these stories and conversations and trying to reduce that stigma that that sadly still exists you know we're hearing it all the time and we're hearing all these sad stories of you know of men who struggled and and not really seeing any way out and, it, and it's tragic because i think uh you know i think there's so much more that needs to be done to you know just to help men talk about their feelings and to see that you know you know that it affects anybody it's not a sign of success it's not a sign of strength um, you know, we're all human, no matter you know, how tough or resilient we all are, um, we still struggle and that's part of life. And, and you know, I think our physical and mental health should be seen as equal. And, and so I'd like to think that through my own experiences, you know, my own, you know, my own, you know, sort of periods, you know, of mental Ill health. And, and ultimately it's been by far the biggest challenge I've ever had to face more so, you know, more so you know, than Everest or anything else I've tried. And I hope that through my own, you know, my own journey by sharing that, I can help other men you know, to realise that it's it's okay to talk and actually it's very important to talk. Um, and if sharing that experience can help people think actually, you know, um, you know, I'm not afraid you know, of this anymore. Um, if they feel able to, to talk and reach out to people um, like I didn't for so long, then that makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't have put it better myself, Alex. I think I would just from reading through your website and your Twitter and stuff. I think the thing that I found from it was that it feels like a very kind of positive and open and and sort of fresh place to be. If you know what I mean, and I suspect yeah. that's kind of the the sort of attitude you you sort of try to cultivate, I suppose, from from your experiences. Um, you on your on your website, as I mentioned, that you you it sort of gives a bit of a background about your sort of story and your your life and and i believe you you suffered from a, a mild form of epilepsy um which sort of the the, the sort of outcome of that was uh, damage to your self-esteem and panic attacks and anxiety mm. do you remember at that time when you were when you know because i think you were about nine i think i read on your website do, do you yeah. remember understanding kind of what was going on at the time or was it just almost something that you later realized what was what was the cause of all of that? Good question. Yeah. So I guess really I had a very normal start in life. You know, I was very lucky. My parents gave me everything I needed. And I've had a stammer ever since I've been able to speak, which I don't really know what caused that. I think it was just one of those things that I was born with, you know. And, you know, the, the mad thing is now my day job is a motivational speaker, but that's a different story. Um, but for the epilepsy, that was luckily only very mild, but it was just the catalyst really for a, 
uh, a whole host of different challenges, you know, such as the anxiety and the panic attacks and, and then being, you know, badly bullied throughout my entire time at school. Um, but at the time, I just felt like a victim. You know, it was a really terrifying thing to be going through. And it's only really when I, I got older that I, I did realise that actually um, it was all connected. You know, the anxiety of the epilepsy and, you know, that, that held me back for such a long time. And then combined with the stammering and the bullying, I think that's what really shattered my self-esteem. Um, the anxiety and panic attacks were probably my kind of first experience of mental ill health and something that I just got better at managing. But I think it made me very vulnerable to mental ill health in later life, you know, when I, when I, when I was a teenager, because my self-esteem was already very low. And when you've been bullied, you know, you become very self-critical, um, you set very high standards for yourself. And I think that's ultimately where the passion for the outdoors came from, is because I found a way to fight back, you know, to feel good about myself. Um, but ultimately, it, it's made, it, you know, I think it made me very prone to feeling very low. And, uh, and yeah, I, I started to piece that together more as I've got older. But I think I've realised now that I have nothing left to prove. You know, I don't need to prove anybody's wrong anymore. But I do think that, like any trauma, you know, it damages you for a long time. Yeah, of course. And 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 one of the things that I thought was was interesting was the, the way you you talk quite quite a lot about um self esteem and you know that's something that's, that's obviously a big cause of anxiety for a for a lot of people and 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 I think it's a, one of those things that I don't think a lot of people realize is the cause of anxiety. Um I feel like it's one of those I think unless you know what it is and, and, and you've felt it, I think it's quite difficult for people to kind of understand. So I suppose then from your experience, Alex, how would you kind of describe those those sort of feelings of, of low self-esteem? Really good question. I think it's more that sense of worthlessness, you know, that sense of lacking, lacking purpose, lacking a feeling of contribution. And I think you almost don't really know your place in the world. You don't belong. You kind of feel like you're, well, you almost feel like you do belong, but you just kind of fit in everywhere else, you know, and and I think therefore it's easy to feel quite dispensable, you know, as if you're not, you're not, you're not kind of worthy of, of your time and space. And I think I've certainly felt that a number of times. Um, and I think it's that whole sense of, you know, not being good enough is something I think is a real problem in, especially in the younger in age groups. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I'm, uh, you know, to think this really started at sort of nine years old. I mean, I'm uh, 25 now, so it's not really that long ago. Um, I think it is that sense of comparison to others. We're more aware of that now than we ever have been. Um, and it's no wonder that we're seeing such a problem of mental health in young people because their self-esteem is completely tied up in what other people think of them. And, you know, really uh, inaccurate self-comparisons and expectations that, you know, if people don't feel good about themselves, that's only conducive to poor mental health. Yeah, that's very true. I think as well, it it's it it's it's such a um, it it's such one of those things that I would suspect is very prevalent amongst teenagers, and is something that I think is quite a difficult subject to talk about because, especially when you're a teenager and in school, and especially as a a young lad, it's a lot of it's about bravado, isn't it, and about being the the loudest or the funniest or the cleverest or the best at sport or whatever it might be and that that obviously was difficult a difficult place for that so those sorts of feelings to manifest itself as 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 you kind of experienced yeah for sure and i think the 
what what kind of then became a challenge later in life is I kind of got my self-esteem. I got my self-confidence back through doing outdoor challenges, you know, because that's somewhere where I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't held back by anything. It was just me versus the mountains. A bit like, you know, it could be sport, it could be music, it could be anything. But for me, it was the outdoors. The problem is, is, is then you're always chasing that next kind of big high. You're always chasing that next fix. And, uh, and I guess it's maybe why a lot of athletes struggle with their mental health when they retire, because they kind of suddenly lose that. And, you know, for me, a lot of my lowest points were after big challenges or after Everest and after the dramas. Um, and I think that's where self-esteem has to be has to come from a place of kind of self-acceptance. And I think bullying in particular and low self-esteem is, 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 is we're chasing that in the wrong places. And uh, it can, and you know, it can feel like a pretty endless cycle. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, I think what you say there is really, really, really true as well. And I think it's, a lot of it's kind of intrinsically linked to our understanding of our own identity, I think as well, and and kind of, as you say, it has to come from a place of of kind of inner acceptance of of yourself. I, I think that sort of misunderstanding around sort of low self esteem and things like that. I think the same sort of goes for for panic panic attacks, which you mentioned that you 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 suffered from alongside your anxiety. What were they kind of like, or what are they like for you? If it's something that you still kind of have to mm. deal with. Interesting again, because I, you know I've had panic attacks recently as last year. And you think that after completing, you know, lots of endurance challenges and, and things that people would see as, you know, mentally tough, it shows that we are, we still are breakable human beings. You know, we still have, have the struggles and you just get better at managing them. You know, you build the resilience to deal with them. But, uh, but yeah, they're, they're very, 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 very kind of uh, debilitating and they're suddenly, you know, very unexpected. And uh, I think, yeah, <laughs> I think the more resilient you know we become, the better we are at managing them and knowing the signs and how to prevent those. But at the same time, we can't be avoidant. You know, we can't avoid uncomfortable situations because we're never going to live our full potential. But when I was younger, it was simply anything where I felt, um, you know, which I connected, which which I connected to an experience. So, for example, I had a few seizures on my epilepsy in McDonald's. So for many years, even the smell of fast food could start a panic attack. You know, I would have panic attacks at school um, if I was stuck in class, if I was stuck in, you know, if I was stuck in a biology class because I had a seizure once in, you know, in a biology class. And so suddenly you attach certain experiences to anxiety and therefore, you know, it becomes a trigger. Um, but ultimately, you know, this is, this is where we can't let anxiety, you know, stop us or defeat us. It's about gradually re-exposing ourselves to you know to those fears and facing them um but i think when i experience them it's just that whole loss of control like, they really are terrifying and you, you really feel like you, like you are going to die <laughs> that's the only way i can describe it um they're different for everybody but i think uh, you know if you, if you pushed far enough for long enough then sometimes it's just the, the way i see it is is we have a stress bucket and we need to find ways of letting that stress out. And if we don't, it boils over and that can be a panic attack. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And and you mentioned at the start of the interview, Alex, about your stammer, which you've you've had for for, for your whole life. Um 
which when I was reading on your website was sort of one of the instigators for a lot of the bullying that you went through in school. Mm. How kind of debilitating was it to sort of have that ability to communicate impaired, particularly as a, as a young person in school when obviously a lot of that time is around kind of social connections and building up friendships and stuff? That must have been really difficult. It definitely changed my whole childhood. And and as ultimately, you know, in a positive way, has, has really got me to where I am now because I think any adversity makes us more resilient. It, it you know, it makes us more mature, and I think it gives us a different perspective on life. And um, and at the time, it was incredibly frustrating. It still is frustrating. You know, it's something I haven't got rid of. Um, I've never really known life without a stammer. You know, to, to take you back to to being at school. Um, you know, I used to hide in the toilets because I'd be so terrified of having to stand up and speak in class because back then they used to make you stand up and read stuff out, which is stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've I've smashed up phones at home, you know, just through the frustration of, of being able to say my own name. I mean, how do you forget, you know, you know your own name? <laughs> you, you know, you can't just make one up, um, which I have done on which I have done on occasions, but it backfires sometimes. Um <laughs> This, God, I, could, I could say so many things, but it's that sense of living in fear all the time. You know, when the phone rings or when you know you've, you've got to speak to somebody or you're, you're queuing to, to get on a bus and ask for a bus ticket and maybe I'll be on the train somewhere. I mean, what's, what's really kind of bizarre is when I'm on the train to a talk and I can't ask for a train ticket. So sometimes I have to say, I have to say I'm going somewhere else, you know, and end up paying more because I can't pronounce the certain word or where I'm going. And then I'll get there and I'll speak to four hundred people and I'm perfectly fluent. Um, but even today, I mean, conversations on the phone, one-to-one chats are really difficult. Um, but speaking to crowds is is pretty much fine. But I think really that frustration, that inability to communicate freely, um, that made me very much... Um, well, that really knocked my self-esteem because, you know, if you can't communicate, if you can't speak to people in the way you want to, then you're not going to feel good about yourself. You're going to feel like you're a failure, which I did. You know, you're going to feel like you're just not born to go anywhere. Um, and I think it's really the outdoors is what made me realise, actually, you know, we can't always control our challenges in life. We don't control what happens to us, but we control how we respond. And that was ultimately about, OK, I have this stammer, but it doesn't have me. But don't get me wrong, you know, even now, um, my whole social skills and and sort of general outlook on life has been ultimately changed because of the stammer. You know, I still would rather email people than call them. Um, I'm very much an introvert, prefer my own space. Um, and, and yeah, people don't believe that I'm a speaker because uh, it would be your worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, um, <clears throat> I understand that quite a lot. I mean, I, I've... Um... I'm kind of, I've never um, had a stammer or speech impediment at all myself, but I I certainly would much prefer, as I said, and Ryan would probably attest this, actually, I'm very much find one-on-one conversations quite awkward. I hate being on the phone. I do a lot of communication via email or WhatsApp if I can avoid it. but I would, but I would happily stand up in front of a crowd of people with a microphone and and do something, you know, that way rather than speaking to somebody one on one. Which I think, for people who aren't in that position, probably find that quite strange. I would imagine. It, um, it is strange, and it's that whole, you know. I think again, it's all part of that sense of, you know, people might think that because you can stand on stage that you're super confident, you know, you, you're super, you know, you know, super positive and happy in yourself. But actually people wouldn't realize that sometimes when I can be on stage, 
um, sounding, you know, really positive and upbeat. In my head, I can be battling all sorts of stuff. And you just get very good at pretending. And this is the problem, I think, with, you know, men's mental health is that we don't want to show how we're really feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is about kind of tearing down those things that say like I can still do this this and this and still feel like this if you know what I mean the two things don't that you know the two things can still coexist as well Maybe. yeah in, in terms of as you grew up then Alex with your with with your stammer what sort of things did you do to kind of tackle it and 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 you know get to a place where you are able to to do the motivational speaking and those type of things I think I just realized I didn't really have a choice, you know, and then when I, I always kind of avoided any, any speaking or anything where I had to speak and it, it did get a little bit better as I got older, but I think um, the public speaking kind of started by chance when, um, when I carried the Olympic torch in 2012, my old school asked me to go back and speak to the kids and I thought, well, no chance, you know, how, how the hell can I do that? But I, I kind of realized through that experience, you know, through actually getting to to be a torchbearer, that by going out my outside of my comfort zone, by challenging myself, and just by by raising, you know, by you know raising a finger to adversity and saying, "Hang on a minute, this isn't going to stop me," um, I was getting all these amazing opportunities, and so I was saying yes to stuff that that scared me, and I, I you know, I ended up doing this talk, and I was blown away by how, by how easy it was, and I got a real kick from that, and thought, actually, I need to do more of this. Um, and then as I was doing more and more of the adventurous stuff, you know, there was, I guess there was more to talk about. Um, but then I think the speaking grew and grew from there really. And I think the stammer was still very much a problem. As I said, I mean, I, I found ways of managing that and I was a covert stammerer, which means that I would sort of swap words to avoid stammering. Um, you know, which is a challenge if you stammer on your name or you stammer on where you live. You know, I lived in the village, uh, in Kelsall. And now I live in Kendall, but I reassure with K words. So sometimes getting on the bus was was a real challenge. Um, so I guess I, I avoided it and I managed the best as best I could. I was very much keen on writing because that was a way that I could express myself without having to speak. Um, and then I guess that's kind of where the books came from. But I think ultimately when I realized that I could inspire people and make a difference by speaking, I just didn't give myself a choice. And when I first got offered, you know, I was offered some money to speak by a business club. That was when, you know, the penny dropped and I thought, well, this is cool. Um, but the only way of, of managing that was to rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. You know, I practiced the talk so I knew every single word. I could avoid any stammering things. But when I did stammer on stage, you know, that was actually part of the charm. That was the story because people, people can relate to that. You know, they don't yeah. want to see somebody who's polished and perfect. We all mess up. We all have those nightmares. And actually, I just laughed it off. It was part of me. Uh, it was authentic. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, it still got to the point when, you know, I could mess up a conversation, make a fool of myself, and I'd just be beating myself up for, for days or weeks about something. Um, but I went on a course in 2016 called The Starfish Project, which taught me um, it was a breathing, you know, it was kind of a breathing technique and uh, that made just the biggest difference and i realized that i could have control of my speech if i wanted it and i could say so much more about that but that course changed my whole life i could speak on stage perfectly fluently without having to rehearse i do still rehearse them but 
it, it changed everything for me. You know, I still have the stammer, but it's not as bad as it was. One question I, I, I'm quite interested to ask, Alex, and it, it's it's something that I've I've always kind of wondered about with um, stammers and, and and speech impediment and stuff. So you said you you've kind of had it, you've lived with it your whole life. How does it? And and uh, is it is it psychosomatic or is it a physical affliction? Did I, I assume you when you were younger you would have spoken to people or that that sort of thing? What's the kind of sort of logistics behind it in terms of where it comes from for is i assume it's different for different people but kind of for you interesting because when i was a lot younger i was always trying to find a cure for it. i did try bits of therapy and no never never really worked so i just kind of gave up and accepted it you know it was going to be here forever um and generally it's kind of accepted to be you know it's almost anxiety attacks of the vocal muscles mm -hmm. um there's lots of different train of thought and to be honest i'm not completely sure so i don't want to give the wrong answer but i think it is it is you know it is purely uh psychological you know there's nothing actual physical there however it kind of manifests itself physically so for example part of the technique is obviously slowing down it's taking a costal breath and if you do that you you know you physically cannot stammer but also making eye contact so you you avoid eye contact when, when you stammer and this is something i still struggle with um because you're trying to avoid people's reactions and emotions. Um, now, if you're more tired, you generally stammer a lot more as well. And it's not necessarily related to fear and anxiety, because sometimes that gives you the edge and you speak fine. Um, it can be with certain people. So I think a lot of it is trigger related, you know, a bit like anxiety attacks. You know, if you've had a bad, if you've rang somebody before where you, where you stammered so badly, you had to hang up or something, or somebody said, you know, somebody said something negative, the next time you try and ring them, you start stammering. It kind of has that kind of memory. Um, so that's, that's about, about as much as I know, really. But what I found is it's very unpredictable. You know, you can't ever predict it completely. Um, and that's what perhaps makes it so frustrating. Alex, you discovered at a young age a love for the outdoors. Um, and that's developed into your current role as an endurance adventurer. Could yeah. you just explain what, what an endurance adventurer is for anybody listening? Good question, Ray. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting because when I, I guess when I found the outdoors, it was always about mountains and hill walking and climbing and then Everest, which I guess is more of a mountaineer. Um, for me, it was not necessarily about just the mountains. It's just that's just where I find the challenge. You know, I need to find some kind of physical and mental challenge um, in outdoor places, which started the mountains. But since then, I've been doing more things uh on running and on the bike which is kind of more of an athlete really um than an adventurer but adventure is still very much a key part of it it's about going to these wild places around the world and, and going you know going going to nature you know to find those outdoor challenges um so i guess that's where you've kind of got the adventure angle and then endurance is because all my training all my sport um and all my challenges have always involved a level of endurance you know my last challenge was essentially nine ultra marathons. The one before that was 72 days of walking, cycling, running, kayaking. Uh, Everest is more, I guess, of an adventure, but it's always been about, you know, long periods of time in the elements, pushing myself um, and big journeys. So I guess endurance adventure just combines them the best way I can, really. And you touched on there um, about climbing Everest. I believe you've had two attempts and 
also two near-death experiences at the same time. Now, obviously conscious of time, but can you sort of talk us through those two near-death experiences and, and just the what it's like when you actually get to Mount Everest and you see the sheer size of it and what you're putting yourself up to? Oh, God, I could say so much. I think the the goal started when I was 14, you know, one of my first hill walks in the Lake District, which is something that I would never have normally done. Um, I remember being out there and being inspired by the whole idea of climbing Everest, the world's highest peak, and, and just the biggest thing that I could overcome and achieve. So to cut the long story short, over those sort of next four years, I was training in uh, in the UK, in Scotland, in the Alps, then the Himalayas. I was learning off people who've been there before, trying to make a plan, really, you know, make that plan that so many people don't make and therefore, you know, they don't commit to anything. Um, and then all the fundraising, you know, I had to raise the money all through corporate sponsorship. Um, I was washing pots and, you know, in our local pub, which wasn't going to pay for it. So that was kind of a four-year goal, really, um, building to, to get the experience. And then in 2014, 18, went out to Nepal for the two-month expedition. A day before we arrived at base camp, there was a massive avalanche, which uh, sadly killed 16 climbing Sherpas. So having raised over £35,000, you know, we had no choice but to pack up and go home. Obviously, very lucky to be going home, which is the important thing. The key lesson from that was that, you know, no matter how hard we work in life, you know, no matter how much we've given, how hard we've trained, how much we spent, the mountain doesn't really give a damn. And it's like this year, you know, I'm sure COVID doesn't give a damn about the holidays we planned and the things that we trained for and the marathons we entered. Um, that's the way life works. But again, it's how we respond to that. Um, so ultimately, I trained harder, went back the following year, 2015. And this time we were climbing to Camp One on the mountain um, when the earthquake hit Nepal. So we were just below Camp One in the Kumbu Icefall uh, when the ground started shaking. And we were hit by a big powder avalanche about 6,000 metres Luckily, we, we escaped unharmed, but then we, we, we were trapped on the mountain for two days, higher than the top of Kilimanjaro, um, just for some perspective. And um, we had no idea that base camp down below had been wiped out by a much bigger avalanche and, and sadly lost three of our team. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of my two disasters in Everest. And, you know, had we not left base camp that morning, then I probably wouldn't be speaking to you now. Um so yeah, that didn't quite go to plan. And of course, when you, you set out for climbing Everest, you're aware of the dangers, but everyone almost has that inner voice that tells you that oh, you'll be fine. And when you come that close to, to, well, to I suppose, a near-death experience, you often hear stories of people saying they changed them or made their outlook change. Did that have any similar effect with yourself? Was there a greater appreciation from there or...? How did you find the sort of coming to terms of it over the next few days of what you'd actually been through? Oh, I mean, so much and even years, you know, five years later now, I'm still affected by it. Um, more so the second time, you know, because that's when we were actually caught up in it. And we're very, very lucky. You know, 22 people died at base camp in, in total. Um, and I think at a young age, at 19, you know, I didn't have that life experience to, to deal with that. I've I'd never dealt with anything like that before. Most people haven't. And um, the trauma and I guess the guilt of it uh, was really hard to process. And I think I'd already suffered uh, depression, you know, three times before that. Um, 
but it came back like worse than ever before because there was this sense of, of guilt, you know, why them, why not me? And not so much losing this goal, you know, not, you know, losing this big Everest goal that had been my identity for so long, um, but just, just this guilt, you know, and I guess it was, you, you could say, you know, kind of post-traumatic, um, you know, having that whole experience is still something that is very vivid in my mind. Um, but my way of coping with that, and it, it took a few months, it took a very, very low, low six months to to get out of it, um, was to try and do something good, you know, like anything, like I always have done is to to choose my response. And I thought, you know, I can I can let this thing grind me down. I can let this, I keep, I keep saying, you know, you know, so what if and why did that happen? Or I can make those guys proud. You know, I can use the time that I was spared to to achieve as much as I possibly can and to make the biggest difference I can. And I threw myself into fundraising. I threw myself into more challenges and writing my book. The problem is when a lot of that died down, that's when all these sort of negative feelings really got over me. And like a lot of people in the winter is always my hardest time. I always really hit a low point in the winter. That winter was was bad, but I think finding a new purpose was really important. And even you know, even now, it still affects me. You know, I still think about it. Um, but by doing something positive, I think is the only way. Yeah, I really like your response there. That was I. I had to choose my response, which I think is quite important to anybody listening. That they do have a say in sort of not so much always the outcome, but how they deal with what with what's happened to them. I think that's very yeah. important. I think so, and and actually, it was my friend Rich at the time who I really I really owe that to because he you know he'd been in the army and at a young age he'd had to deal with some you know serious trauma as you can imagine. He was one of the very few people that could really relate to what I was going through, um, and I remember him saying to me, you know, in it was quite a tough love approach. It was that kind of man up approach that we try to avoid, but he said, you know, you just got to grow from this. You know the people that died wouldn't give a damn if it was you and you you know you can keep asking what if or you can grow from it and that was that kind of wake-up call i needed that i had a choice you know i could feel sorry for myself or i could use it as a force for good and i would hope to say five years later that i'm still shining a bit of a positive light and and using my time as best i can absolutely and, and do you have any plans in the future to conquer everest to go back and do it again or is that something that you've you're gonna put is just part of your history now uh i think i'm too young to say never i mean it was such a big goal for so long that i don't think it's completely gone away you know and i'm not afraid of it i'm not afraid it could happen again because like we've seen this year you know life is so uncertain um but to really get there you've got to want it more than anything you've got to want it 100 and be willing to make the sacrifices that I was able to do a few years ago. You know, I didn't have the same commitments and responsibilities. And to raise that sort of money, you've got to be working on it full time. Um, but more than anything, I think, as much as I don't have the motivation to go back at the moment, um, I found bigger challenges close to home, you know, where I can make a bigger difference and raise more money. And I think Everest was just a step on that journey. I thought it was this kind of big vision of success that we're all looking, looking to achieve. But actually, um, it's given me so much more, you know, like the speaking and the charity and the new challenges that I've been able to do that I think have actually been equally big. So 
Nepal is a wonderful place, you know, and I, I was lucky to go back there a couple of years ago and kind of put all that trauma to bed, you know, and I've got lots of friends out there and it's an amazing place, but I think there's bigger challenges for now. And uh, my mum may have a, a different thought on the idea as well, so better not tell her. <laughs> <laughs> and you've, you've mentioned that quite openly that in the past you've had battles with depression on several occasions and you've talked about how you're always throwing yourself into something new and different challenges. Often people talk about when they're encapsulated in either a task at hand or raising money or even sports themselves, that that time that they're in maybe a long-distance run or a competition that they can't think about the things they normally worry about. Do you, Would you say that a lot of your problems occur when you haven't got something to look forward to or you're not in the middle of training or preparing for something? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, every time, really. I think I was always prone to depression anyway because of, you know, that self-esteem as as a child and the anxiety and just being very self-critical, very much a, a high achiever. Um, and, and, yeah, I think ultimately my first bout of depression came when I was injured. I couldn't run. And therefore, I'd lost that focus. I'd lost that escape. And... I wasn't able to make progress towards a goal. Therefore, there's that loss of purpose. Um, the year later, it was a similar position. I got injured again and I couldn't do all these outdoor things. And combined with that, I'd had a really busy year with lots of things happening, lots of exciting opportunities with the Olympic torch and charity fundraising. And, and then all of a sudden that dies down. And you realise sometimes that you're actually distracting yourself. You're avoiding your feelings. And... I think that was when it hit me again, but also that's when my eating disorder started. And that that happened in a different way, really. That was because of I was trying to um, you know, improve my diet. I was trying to copy other athletes and people that were a lot faster than me at running and, and thinking that, okay, while I can't train, I'll do something positive. I'll work on my nutrition and, you know, so I'll come back as a stronger runner. But I think with a lot of these fads that are around with a lot of these sort of um, unhelpful uh, comparisons and the fact with me being a very much a high achiever with very high expectations, um, trying to kind of control my diet and cutting out all these bad foods and, and this kind of strict routine ultimately failed pretty, pretty spectacularly. And that's kind of, you know, that's how the bulimia started. So since then, the, the, the eating disorder, and the depression have kind of worked hand in hand and sometimes it's hard to know which one's coming first but with the depression um the sort of three or four bouts i've had of that which have lasted you know a few months um they've always been after a major life event and i think when i've lost that sense of purpose so people may get that you know from everest they may get that from sport or their job you know you know or their family it could be anything i think purpose is is everything you know we need purpose not just pills i mean i was on antidepressants i've been through all that but ultimately the only thing that really got me back on my feet was having a new target having a new goal um and we need something to get us out of bed in the morning and i think that's that's what purpose is is, is so important absolutely you, you seem very self-aware very driven but also very self-critical and, and at times harsh on yourself how do you sort of battle between the two of knowing what you want and what you need to do but also coming down on yourself quite hard at times it seems like it's a bit of a juggling act between the two it is and I think 
like many of us, I mean, I am my own, you know, I am my own kind of worst enemy at times. And because with the challenges and with the adventures, you you almost have this expectation to keep pushing yourself, you know, not to be soft on yourself. And, and it is that whole dangerous trap, I think, for men of, you know, you know, man up, be tough, you know, keep pushing. But actually, um, self-care can be a real challenge because, you know, because I've been through worse, I've been through, you know, really tough environments and, and challenges. I almost uh, expect more of myself all the time. I expect myself to be constantly challenging, but that's not sustainable. Um, that's not natural. It's not healthy. And I'm always a bit dubious about self-care because it's something that's so important but I think sometimes we can use it as a bit of an excuse I think sometimes we need to to know the difference there's a very fine line between you know okay um I need a bit of a push to get out and do this because otherwise I'm just going to feel worse you know we all know that the days we don't feel like going out and facing the world and going on a run or going to football or anything sometimes we know it'll help and there isn't then an argument, well, that's taking care of yourself. But I think there is an argument for giving ourselves a bit of a nudge sometimes. Um, and that does come from self-awareness and that only comes from experience of, you know, of the peaks and the troughs. Um, but I think I am learning to, to be a bit easier on myself, you know, to accept that I can't always be on Everest, I can't always be on these challenges. And um, yeah, you know, you know, we're not always on the A game. And, and that's absolutely fine. And sometimes it's about questioning why we're doing things. Are we doing it to push ourselves? Are we doing it to prove anything? Or are we doing it actually, you know what? I don't feel like that today. I'm going to have a day off. I'm just going to enjoy myself and have a rest. And that's fine. Um, turning off that mindset can be really challenging. And, uh, and I think if anything, it's just about um, questioning why you're doing it. You know, is um, if it's trying to kind of punish yourself or, distract yourself then uh, i think that's when you need to take a step back yeah absolutely i'm i'm one of those people myself who's quite harsh on myself if i don't get to the gym or don't get to football and i'm very restless anyway so i don't do well sitting down for, for long period so covid hasn't been great in that regard but not familiar <laughs> yeah i think you are right though that if you're gonna have a, a rest day or you're not feeling 100 percent, you, you are gonna stay in don't beat yourself up about it i think it, it's when it starts turning into three four five days and you start realizing you may be getting into a bit of a slump that it's good to get yourself up and out but don't beat yourself up over one day and i think a lot of us do which probably isn't very healthy i really like what you said about purpose being your pills as well now of course as you've said it's not always easy to have a, a task at hand or a challenge ahead of you do you have any other coping me mechanisms or, or anything else that you do outside of sort of exercise or do you sort of have an appreciation now that moving forward potentially permanently that that's going to be your medicine yeah great question i think this year especially the, the my biggest concern and i think we're, we're, we're unfortunately you know seeing and hearing a lot about it is this loss of purpose you know so many people have lost their jobs or they've you know they've not been able to do their hobbies because of lockdown and things and people have had their lives turned upside down and people will be losing that sort of sense of purpose you know um and i think a sense of contribution you know which could 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 be part of that is really important whether that's giving something whether it's you know volunteering helping a charity doing something good for ourselves and other people i think naturally boosts our resilience because it actually does make us feel good and i guess 
it is similar to my challenges. It is, a, it is similar to that sense of purpose. But, you know, after the, the earthquake, for example, I focused my, my time on fundraising for the people in the earthquake. Um, that, I think, is always good for anybody who's feeling a bit low. But for me, exercise is definitely, you know, my the best the best antidepressant I've ever I've ever used, you know, and I know it's different it's different, you know, you know, for everybody. I mean, some people just don't enjoy exercise. For me, if I'm not out doing something every day, um, I certainly notice that difference. Um, it doesn't have to be running marathons or doing extreme things. It could just be walking in the park, you know, just a bit of time outside, I think should be a routine for everybody. You know, it doesn't have to be anything physical, just spending some time outside you know, a mountain medicine, as I call it, um, is probably the one thing that most people are overlooking. So time outside gives us perspective. You know, it. I think it's um, it's as nature intended. You know, it lets us kind of walk and talk in the open is, is really key. Aside from that, I think connection with other people. Now, I'm very much independent. I'm very much an introvert. So I've kind of enjoyed lockdown. But we can, we can we can so easily get ourselves caught up in negative thought cycles and um, we can feel very alone things can spiral and when we least feel like speaking to people sometimes those hidden messages those chats with people that we didn't want to talk to even people on the street who say hello that reminds us that actually we're not alone and i think sometimes forcing yourself to reach out to somebody um you know for me, it's got me out of many, many of my low troughs. It's having people that don't necessarily try to fix. They don't even try to understand, but they just listen, you know. And I've never, ever not felt better having spoken to somebody and just offloaded. So I think connection is one of them. But, the, you know, exercise for me um, has been the most powerful thing. And sometimes not always having goals, you know, because if you're constantly chasing the next goal, you're always going to want something else and you're always going to be avoiding your feelings. You know, just be comfortable with being uncomfortable is, is what I'd say. Absolutely. I think it's great advice. And you also touched on being outdoors as well. There is also that sort of nature element as well, isn't it? To actually being outside that will release and calm you down. I think there is a a study done in Japan a while back around runners and there was a group that ran in the city versus those who ran in the forest. Um, and they looked at the sort of the healing power around the brain and, and running in the forest and just being within nature. There's something about it that's just comforting to people. Um, and it sounds like you get a fair dose of that, which which is very healthy to do. So on terms of the talking and the communicating, you're obviously very comfortable telling your story and it's great for us to have this podcast and be to bring someone on like yourself. But how was you telling sort of family members and close friends when it first sort of happened, the, the, the depression? The depression was a lot easier and a lot more accepted, it seems. I think that that was something I couldn't really hide. You know, my mood was so low. I was so sort of just couldn't really function, you know, that it wasn't something that I could hide. And, you know, my mum was aware of it quite quickly and, she was very supportive with going to the, well, first going to school, then my GP about it. And and I don't, I don't think she could really do a lot to help other than just be there and go through that process, where, you know, alongside me was was really important. Um, talking about it in terms of publicly, I mean, I kept it with, you know, just kind of close family and friends. Um, but that was, you know, that was sort of seven, eight years ago. So I don't have the kind of platform that I have now. 
Um, so talking about it to mum was quite easy, but grandparents who I'm very close to, they just don't get it. You know, it's it's a generational thing and that was really challenging. You know, they they have have the mindset of, you know, what you have to be depressed about. And well, if we knew the answer, I'm sure we'd all be a lot happier. Um, and perhaps that is the guilt and the frustration that, that we all feel. Um, so I think depression was was easier, but uh, with with the eating disorder, that was a completely different game because that started, um, you know, you know, you know, as I mentioned, off the back of uh, an injury when I, when I couldn't run, I couldn't exercise, I couldn't burn calories for for quite a few months, um, and that became a problem that never really went away. You know, it's like an addiction. You know, once you've got it, it's very hard to rewire that and change your relationship with food. And I've never had a normal relationship with food since. Um, and with eating disorders and men, there seems to be this even bigger stigma. You know, it's seen very much as, a, as something that affects girls and it's in quite focused on body image as well. And there was something about it that just made it incredibly uncomfortable talking about, um, especially with men, you know, and I kept it a secret for probably three years. You know, it would come and go. I'd have periods of managing it. It was very secretive. Nobody knew about it. Um, I tried to deal with it myself. I read everything online. I read books. But I just couldn't break this this kind of cycle of binging and purging. And, it, you know, it massively improved, but it never went away. Um, and it's the sort of thing that you can hide from family for a long time. But my mum only found out about it about three and a half years later. And I remember, you know, the, the sort of shame, the tears. And luckily, mum was, you know, was was great. She kind of suspected it. Um, but maybe she was scared to talk about it as well. Um, but that was the start of, of actually seeking help. I remember going to my GP about that and realising that this is something I couldn't solve my own. And I remember just breaking down in tears to her. You know, I don't know where it came from. I just, it all came out. Um but with other family, I mean, it took even longer. You know, my dad kind of found out off the grapevine. Um, I knew they'd be supportive, but there was just this really disgusting, uncomfortable feeling about it. And I only kind of did it publicly in 2017 when I started my last challenge. Even today, I mean, it's taken about two years then to get to the point where I can talk about it openly to anybody. Um, I very much in a, I very much in a place of recovery now. You know, last year I went through quite an intensive, you know, kind of you know, you know, you know, you know, it's about support and therapy and then, you know, I'm in a much, I'm in a much stronger place now. But I think there is still this disconnect and misunderstanding and even telling male friends about it, you can sort of see them getting a bit a bit uncomfortable, a bit, you know, a bit fidgety. Um and I think we need more men talking about it. I know obviously Freddie Flintoff last week, his documentary was was a great example of that. Um so I've given a very long answer, really, but with eating disorders, it was incredibly difficult. With depression, um, it seems to be more accepted and more known. No, I'm glad you did give a long answer because it's very true and it's not something I really thought of, but it, it instantly made sense that we do have this bias where we attach certain illnesses to, to genders and assume that one's more likely than the other. Um, and it's wrong, really, on, on a social level, but it, it does happen. So I think it's important someone like yourself to come on and say that because you don't know someone listening could hear that and think well i'm in the exact same boat i don't feel comfortable and as you say sometimes we know we'll be accepted 
even if we come forward, we know our parents or family members will support us, but it's still probably the most nerve-wracking thing you'll ever do, oh, um, even, even when you know the support will be there. So it's also quite interesting that you sort of said you, the recovery started at the point you spoke out. So just to reiterate that point, really, and sort of to wrap it up, just, just how important is it for people to open up about their mental health? God, I mean, you know, if you broke your leg, if you had another illness, we'd all be talking about it. You know, this year especially, you know, I think in COVID, um, you know, people are talking about a physical health, you know, condition and a mental health condition has equal, if not more dangerous effects, you know, um, and all the stats are showing that. And uh, I think especially now in my age group, um, we, you know, it's becoming the biggest killer, you know, especially, um, you know, you know, especially in men, uh, I think I think the urgency um, has been bigger than ever before. And what I would say to people who were struggling in silence, like I was, trying to manage it on my own, thinking that I could, because just because I've been up, you know, I've been on, the, on all these outdoor challenges that I was supposed to be mentally tough and I was supposed to be all that. There is no image, you know, there is no image of, of strength or mental Ill health. You know, it can affect anybody, anywhere. And... I would like to think it hasn't been a barrier to my success. You know, it's not it's not a sign of weakness. And actually, what I would say to anybody is that, you know, everything I everything that I was scared about happening when I spoke out never happened. In fact, I only had a positive response. You know, I had friends reaching out to me saying that they suffered and they thought they were there, the only one. And me talking out helped them to open up. And I've had friends who one was an international athlete. Um you know, I after I posted a blog about my eating disorder after all this time, I had nothing but a positive response. And I saw they posted a blog about theirs. And when I when I messaged them, I, I sent them, um, you know, I, I sent them, uh, you know, a post afterwards. And I just said, you know, I said, well done on speaking out. You know, always here if you need to chat. I you know what they said. They said it was your blog that gave me the courage to do it. And they'd had several people do the same to them. So I guess my message is that you have no idea what the people around you are dealing with and your story could become another story and then you create this positive multiplier effect. You know, I only wish I'd spoken out sooner because I'm now able to use that to, to help other people, hopefully, um, and accept that, you know, I have a problem, I have a challenge, but it's uh, it's not going to have me. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's all part of the story. So basically don't be afraid really you know uh it won't be as bad as you think welcome back still got ryan with me ryan i, I don't know about you mate but i thought there was quite a lot from alex's interview that people can practically take away you know and use in their own life and in their own sort of dealings with their with their mental health and with their well-being and and even if it's not for you know even if you're not someone who who is struggling with depression or anxiety or whatever it might be just kind of day-to-day well-being stuff i thought was that there was a lot in there that was kind of useful from that perspective as well yeah for me personally um quite a lot of it resonated with me because i'm, I'm quite fearful of public speaking and then also there was a lot of things you said in there which i do which i didn't realize might be linked to, to other things so i'm i hold very poor eye contact in my job, I work in sales and I hide behind email a lot rather than, than ringing because I'm just uncomfortable with those conversations and almost that you just expect the rejection when you're in a role like that for someone to turn around and go, like, stop bothering me type thing. Um, 
I think I've had it with this podcast before where you and to find out like putting my face to something never been comfortable with like whether it's just a photo opportunity or just that coming to terms of your own voice and things like that so I kind of resonated a lot with, with Alex despite never probably having as dark a moment as, as he had I wouldn't claim to to have been that low but a lot of the little triggers I, I certainly thought well they're, they're things I do so as a personal uh, learning point I thought when he talked about practicing and getting your breaths and making sure if you are going to be in a position where you're sort of the spotlight's on you and you've got to you've got to talk just to be as well prepared as possible and I'll always make things go a bit smoother which I think is something I'll certainly certainly take on moving forward um, because I think if you know you're in a situation where you're going to sort of have to speak whether it be in front of one person a hundred people whatever it may be the build-up to it going over your head you almost convince yourself you're going to get something wrong or you're going to mess up and it, it, it's kind of I always I always think about this the, the natural human reaction to to not wanting to embarrass yourself or mess up you end up sweating or overcomplicating things or stumbling over your words and you think these aren't conducive to do the opposite of what I'm trying to achieve yeah. Yeah, your body takes you to a place where it actually makes it even more difficult so I think you have to come up with like little mechanisms to say, I'll never not be nervous doing this. But if I do this and this, I'll be much more comfortable in that position, which I think is something Alex has learned to do. He's never really said, I will cure my stammer. But I know if I go through this process, it'll make public speaking much easier and, and I'll own it. And I think he said, even to this day, he, he still gets words uh sort of in the wrong order and, and uses different words when he means another word. But he kind of just owns it and it becomes authentic when he does his public speaking and stuff so on a personal note I thought yeah that's very useful for someone like me to to take and, and use moving forward yeah I thought that was interesting Ryan that you highlighted that because when we were when we do these episodes at the end of every episode we ask the guests to do the little soundbite that you hear at the very beginning of the of the mm. episode and because of um because of Alex's stammer he had a few he had to have a few different goes at it and, and he's said to himself you know or, and to us when we were doing it, he was like i just need to slow down and then and then give himself sort of a platform to introduce into it wasn't it to say the the um the sound bites and that was just interesting it was it was exactly what he'd been talking about and then there was a practical application of it that managed yeah. to 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 get him through what could have been a really difficult situation and you can see how that can then cause panic attacks and anxiety and things like that for, for people in that perspective going back to the theme then what i what i think's kind of especially impressive about about alex and again another thing that we can you know as the listeners that we can take away from it really is that he's been dealt a lot of difficult hands you know the the, the sort of different sort of afflictions that he's been he's been dealt both sort of physically and also psychologically but he's sort of in order to manage that mental health has found like outlets for himself, you know, and as you you mentioned with the theme, Ryan, having purpose is really important. Mm. And that's something that's really important for everybody's mental health. You know, something to get yourself out of bed in the morning, something to to prepare yourself to to, to give you something to go, yeah, I'm I'm you know, I'm 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 making a, a difference here or I'm doing something. But one thing that he talked about and you were you were really you were really good at highlighting this as well was if it's a day that you don't feel like doing that thing or you don't feel like doing something like going, you don't, you can't be bothered going to the gym that day or you can't be bothered doing that run or whatever it might be. Don't beat yourself up about it. Like you're allowed to have a day off if you, if you can't be bothered. And I think that's a, that's also an equally important message for people, isn't it? When they're trying to 
find that purpose in their life. Absolutely. I think um, you see it a lot with addiction and, and things like drink. There. It's either feast or famine where people either completely stop something or they go completely the other way. And you find that a lot with exercise as well. When you go, you go. But when you don't go, you don't go for two years or a yeah. year, whatever it may be. And I think that becomes almost unhealthy that you either have the extreme either end of something. Yeah. Whereas um, if you can just sort of factor it, maybe a couple of hours of your week, um, and when that occurs, it doesn't matter. So you don't have to be overly rigid and I have to go for a run at six o'clock on a Tuesday. And if I don't have fed, if you take away that pressure from yourself and you kind of go, do you know what? I've got 20 minutes now. I might go for a walk or, oh, I've had a meeting cancelled. So I think I'll take myself for a jog. If you sort of relax around the pressure you put on yourself to, to, to exercise, then you'll enjoy it more. And I think ultimately it should be about enjoyment. So yeah. if you don't enjoy running on a road, which I'll be honest, I don't do something else and yeah. there'll be something for you. Some people cycle, some people row, some people play tennis. There's so many different things you can do. I'd say try as much as you can till you stumble on one you really enjoy and it won't feel like exercise. And I think that's what Alex has done. Um, he mentioned that. I think the problem Alex kind of had was that he's always looking for the next challenge. And I think he did put a lot of pressure on himself, but I suppose that may breed a bit of consistency with what he does that he's always looking for something. So well, it's, I think you know- it's, do you know what, yeah. Ryan? It, it's an inter- it's all it's 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 good timing for this conversation in a way because, you know, we were talking at the very top of this episode about the fact that my arms are now broken because I tried mm. to lift some weights, um, in the week, and the gyms have obviously just opened. People's sports places have just started opened, and people will have basically spent the better part of twelve months not doing any of those things, and maybe most people, as as I include myself in that bracket, have put on some weight because of that fact. And will now be them probably putting some pressure on themselves to lose the weight or get back yeah. active and, and and do all those things that they were doing previous to the pandemic. So I, like I was saying before, I've rejoined the gym. And when I used to go to the gym, which was about two years ago, I used to go like, I went through a period where I was going like every night. Like I was just, and like if I didn't go, then I'd be like, you'd beat yourself up for not going, even if you had a legitimate reason not for going. Yeah. So starting again this time, I've been like, I'm going two times a week and I'm just going to go in and I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to do the bit of cardio that I want to do and then if I can be bothered going and doing some weights, I'll do some weights. And then I just just trying to build yourself up like yeah. that and break yourself into it. And I think that's, you know, you, you don't have to. I think that the, with, with, for a lot of people, there's, a, there's pressure, isn't there, particularly with things like exercise and losing weight and eating well and stuff. And because there's a lot of like, you should do it like this, you should do it like that. Oh, look what I've mm. done, or I've done this. And I think it's it's just doing it at your own pace, isn't it? And it is. I mean, I was you can do. I was involved. I was in like a WhatsApp group recently, and, and there was some lads in there sort of talking down about the gym, saying, "Oh yeah, just these big steadheads, body, body, blah." And I, I kind of thought about it to myself, I didn't get overly involved, but I thought, well, if you actually go to, like, I use Total Fitness, which is a big brand, and I haven't been myself for over a year, but if you go to a gym like that or a leisure centre or a complex, you'll see groups of youngsters doing some stuff with a sports coach. You'll yeah. see people who are really big and probably competing competitions. You'll see women in there. You'll see older fellas um, who do classes and then go in the sauna or enjoy the swimming pool. And they do it strictly for a social connection, not real, really for any 
athletic improvement they go because the lone win it's a great place for them to, to catch up with friends you'll see people doing squash classes you'll see people doing spinning classes like the gym doesn't have to be about lifting weights and getting big and being one of those fellas who who takes his top off in front of the mirror the gym is is its purpose it can be rehab it can be sport and improvement it can be mental health it can be the social aspect the gym is whatever you want it to be yeah so what i would say to anyone listening who isn't sure about the gym or feels that they're not confident with their own body is that don't use it for those purposes use it for whatever purpose you want because that's what it's there for and i i actually think probably 80 percent of the people who go to the gym are going for those reasons not necessarily because they're they're a big as kevin bridges put it in his stand-up a big new breed of mammal that we've created <laughs> protein bastards as he calls it um, so yeah you use the gym for whatever you want and don't feel bad about it don't compare yourself yeah. to others which is easier said than done because we all do it but um I, I like to think that most people who go to the gym are appreciative of the people around them and think you know what they're there for a reason and yeah. fair play to them i think most yeah. people are are quite helpful when it comes to those type of things yeah, hundred percent, mate. One thing I just want to touch on before we before we kind of wrap up um, was you and I were talking before the episode about Alex's trip to uh, Everest that he that he made twice and wasn't able to wasn't able to climb it unfortunately due to due to a couple of really horrific incidents that happened. And there's a there's a film on Netflix called Sherpa, um, which is actually about the incident that Alex describes where. There was an avalanche on the um, on a portion of the mountain which killed sixteen of the the local Sherpas, who were the sort of local Nepalese residents who who assist the climbers in, in in getting up the mountain. And that was the year that Alex. It was the day before Alex got there, wasn't it? That that, that happened. So I would fully recommend going onto Netflix and watching that film because it's. I mean, a it's 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 just a really interesting film from 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 that perspective. But it's also really interesting to watch from the the angle of. Um, thinking about some of the things that the people who were there were going through and also some of the things that, you know, some of the conversations that people were having around um, Sherpas more broadly. And so, yeah, I would I would fully recommend checking that out. I thought that was interesting. That, um, I think your mum said that she'd watched it, didn't she, quite recently? Yeah, it was uh, Rachel's mum. Yeah, was it, watched yeah. It, really enjoyed it, yeah. And it, I didn't realise that uh, there was a film around that incident and it, it was... She mentioned it this week, funnily enough, and after we were listening back to Alex's, and I thought, what are the chances of that? So mm-hmm. it was something I'm going to go and watch, and I think that um, it doesn't just highlight sort of what goes on on the mountain, but it looks at, like, the dangers, racial tensions, the economic realities of what the mountain brings and the, the local people. So, yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to watching it. Yeah, it's very good, mate. It's very good. And, and I think in the context of Alex's interview, he talked about, some survivor guilt that he went through which we've obviously had conversations with people before particularly you know i think you know around this time of the year kevin cowley who was a, a hillsborough survivor that was our obviously our first episode and that was something we talked to him about so in that context it's 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 an interesting watch as well um so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of wrap us up there ryan thank you very much for for your thoughts as usual thank you to you the listener for coming along with us today uh, I'm just going to point you in the direction of a couple of organisations. If you are in a position where your mental health is 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 struggling, or that you you're having any any dark thoughts, and you need somebody to speak to at any time in the day, the Samaritans are of course available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they're available on one one six one two three. 
and the calm zone also have a phone line which is available 5 p.m to midnight and that's 0800 58 58 58 and i'm also going to put you in the direction of uh, alex's um charitable organization that he helped found um called minds over mountains and they basically provide mental health and um, sort of well-being therapy through outdoor activity so that's that's a hundred percent i would recommend you go and check that out because it's really interesting some of the stuff that they get up to um that's mindovermountains.org.uk and their twitter is at mo underscore mountains so go and check that out over there so we're going to hand it over now to alex's quick five but before we do that Remember that the purpose of man marketing is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've started that conversation, but we're asking you to keep it going. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, even talk to strangers. But most important of all, remember to listen. Sometimes listening could save a life. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and we will see you next time. Um, Alex, if we were to pick one outdoor challenge, which one should we choose? Um... God, I've recently ran the National Three Peaks, so obviously Ben Nevis, Scarfell, Pike and Snowden, but I ran between them um, about 450 miles. So I'd say don't do that. My, I, my ankles are still swollen four weeks later. Um, but I would say the Yorkshire Three Peaks is a, is a fantastic day out and it, it does, doesn't involve having to drive in between them. So either the Yorkshire Three Peaks or the National Three Peaks is the first one that I did when I was... 16 and it's inspired me to do much bigger stuff so uh it's good to do something our home soil fantastic when you started to say running there i thought oh god we're gonna end up running here somewhere it's a bit bit same same <laughs> what's the coldest you've ever been well i don't know in terms of how i felt but when i was on um on on Chowayu in tibet which is the uh, sixth highest peak in the world this was after everest um, we were at Camp 2, which is 7,200 metres, and I think it was down to about minus um, minus 23 in the tent. Feels like that sometimes at footy matches on a Tuesday I was, night. I, I was, <laughs> was going to say, nothing on Grimsby away last the other November. Though, <laughs> <laughs> well, if we'd been to the, to the top, it would have been it, it would have been in the minus 30s, so yeah, quite sketchy. Ooh. Well, At least when you get to the top, you can't lose 5-2, which which you do when you go to Grimsby. (laughs) Well, I didn't even get on the top, I'm afraid. So, yeah, I can't even, you know, 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 I can't even vouch for that, but I'm sure it's equally bad. (laughs) Um, So I suppose then building on that, what's the wettest you've ever been? On my my, uh, Climb the UK Challenge, which is when I I climbed, well, I, I walked, cycled, ran and kayaked to the highest point of all the 100 counties in the UK. Uh, about 5,000 miles in 72 days. Um, I was in um, I was in the Cairngorms, and I remember it being so wet that uh, my waterproof phone started to leak, um, and it was just it was just absolutely torrential. Um, I ended up hypothermic and uh, having to well having to cut the, cut the cut the day short. Um, and there was a similar day in the Burwin Mountains in Wales when. Yeah, I was I was wetter than an otter's pocket, as the saying goes. So, <laughs> in Scotland or Wales, will always do you well. And obviously, now I live on on the edge of the lake, so I get I get plenty of that as well. What is your favourite piece of camping or outdoor kit? My uh, Innovate X Talon shoes. I mean, with those things, the grip when I'm running in the fells is amazing. You know, I can run down mud and not fall not fall on my backside. I just I'm just free to go to go fast and go far in those. So if i'm in those shoes i feel like i'm, I'm in my element really um and then just 
If it's camping gear, I've got an ultralight sleeping bag by Marmots, which is about 500 grams. And that's that, that was amazing on my challenges as well. I, um, when we went camping the other week, uh, Sophie, my, uh, my girlfriend pulled out a, like a little retractable table that I think we, we used to, to cook on, but it became a little bedside table for me to put, pop me, uh, pop me bottle of Estrella on while we were, while we were lying in bed. So that, I, I, it was, I was honestly, and then I folded away into this little, I was honestly, it was, I was so impressed. Um, Probably not that useful in any of the challenges, but there you go. Well, that, I mean, it's either that or a stove. I mean, you know, it, if you don't have a brew and a biscuit, then did you really go camping? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when you're doing your challenges, I imagine some of them, especially the endurance ones, are quite long, uh, a bit monotonous. Do you listen to any podcasts or do you listen to any sort of certain type of music to get you through it? When I was running the Free Peaks in back in August, um, the there was one particular song that I played a lot, was which was uh, which was of course I'm going to be 500 miles by the uh, Proclaimers. Um, <laughs> anything just to make me laugh and get in the spirit. But uh, I listened to a lot of trance music, which is a bit of a guilty pleasure. Um, quite upbeat, quite fast. A lot of rock music. Um, I have a very embarrassing taste, but uh, music has always got me through the tough moments. Off the back of that, to think the ones where um, you've got a bit more thinking time. You'd be popping man marking into your ears for future challenges. Absolutely, because I think you know, <laughs> absolutely, cause, you know, you know, we all need inspiration, and I find sometimes if I if I tend to hit a bit of a grey spot, you know, I'm I'm kind of finding that I'm not really thinking of new ideas or you know or moving forward to things, and actually hearing other stories, hearing different perspectives, and you know, and hearing off men who've who achieve things in you know in their field in sport. I think we all need that inspiration and. I really hope that my story, you know, offers a bit of that as well. But uh, but I think anything around the outdoors and mental health and sport um, is something that all men need to be, in, you know, in contact with. So, uh, yeah, now, you know, obviously, obviously now they've heard about it and I've, you know, I'm really keen to catch up all the episodes now. So, uh, so yeah. Alex, do you put a tomato sauce in the fridge or in the cupboard? In the fridge. Right. Which one do you do? Fridge all day long. <laughs> Oh, see, I'm cupboard, you know. Just weird. I don't want cold sauce <laughs> on me chips. That's <laughs> mm, nah, it's gotta be cold. It's, it's, even, it's even worse, though, guys. I, I, I don't is I don't have any. In fact, after this, I'm going shopping because I've not had any for a few weeks. So uh, I'm gonna. It, it, it's on my shopping list. Yeah, get it in. It's an essential. Well, just, just to end on that, then, if you're having a bacon sandwich, do you have it on bread or toast? I'm afraid I only eat fish, so uh, I don't have either. Um, I was going to say I mean, fish sandwich, but that isn't a thing, is it? <laughs> so when you say you only eat fish, you're pescatarian, or you literally only eat fish? <laughs> like an otter? otter. <laughs> no, um, I spent a lot of time in the rain, but I'm not an otter. No, <laughs> no, I've been a, uh, I've been a pescatarian for about three years now. So I find that with all my training, with all the running, you know, a pescatarian diet suits me really well. But uh, but I would fish finger sandwich. That would definitely be on bread, but on brown bread. Okay, mayo or tomato sauce. Bit of tartar. Bit of tartar sauce, surely. For fish, yeah, fish fingers, yeah. Um, probably tomato sauce, though. Yeah, I, it works on everything. Yeah. I think you were trying to say tartar sauce there, weren't you, Dan? But I don't yeah. think many people 
buy tortosaurus for the house, do they? You can make it quite easily, though. Oh, if you're making a fish finger sandwich, it's because you're going for something quick. You know, you're going to spend more time making tartar sauce yeah, than you yeah. are lashing some fish fingers in the oven. That, that's very true, and I realise. I, I feel, I feel that's the type of thing Sophie would say to me. Well, I'll just make some tartar sauce. Right, listen, listen. So I've got to leave for forty in eighteen seconds. So <laughs> if you, unless you can rustle it up in that time, then it's not happening. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Cheers, mate. Night, guys. See you soon. See you later, man. Bye, bye, bye. Best of luck at the shop. Oh, he's gone. <laughs> is he creating a shop? Remember, he was going. He was going to the shop to buy his tomato sauce. Uh, I'm sorry, I thought you meant he's like going to open a shop. <laughs> so, mate, um, are you still at work? I am, mate. Yeah, yeah. Sam, so, we'll get home safely. All right, uh, Chuck. Speed to you, too. Speed to you in a bit, mate. See you, mate. Bye, bye. Bye, mate. Bye, bye.